it's, it's pretty tangible. I, I don't know if you all feel it. I mean, we hear that some of you are feeling it, but God's, God's doing something different right now in our services. And I just keep going back to, you know, God's moving and it's not because like we're the best singers and we're the best musicians and we're the best preachers and we're the best people. And we just are doing everything so right. And God's like, you get a gold star. I'm going to bless you with my presence. No, um, we're just hungry. We're just hungry for him. And so he's stirring things up. You can feel it in the services, but you want to know where it comes out. It comes out in our everyday lives. He's stirring things up, and that doesn't always feel good. That doesn't always look pretty. Because when he's stirring things up and he's breaking up the hard places in our hearts, or he's actually getting to have access to the parts of our hearts and minds that we've kept him out of, um, things come to the surface. You know, good things, um, but also bad things, ugly things, ugly parts of ourselves. And so it's clear God is doing something. Um, and I'm just thankful because he's, he's purifying us. He's refining us. He's, he's healing us. He's not leaving us the way we are. Isn't that beautiful? So God, we're asking for more of him, all of him. Do you know what the trade-off is though? All of us. The more that we want of him, the more we have to die to ourselves. And uh, we're actually going to be talking about death a lot today. So if you have small children in the room, you, I mean, nothing gory, but um, we're going to be talking about death a lot today. Um, in case you somehow missed it, last week was Easter. You know, yeah, you can, you can, woo, woo, okay. Um, if you come from a more traditional church background or you didn't grow up attending church, Easter for uh, charismatic Christians is kind of like the Super Bowl. Um, you know, there's lots of hype, there's like bright lights, and there's tons of big energy. There's like an elaborate halftime show. I mean, like a skit, like showing Jesus defeating the devil and coming up out of the grave, and there might be dancers around. Or um, we're, big on, we're big on Easter in charismatic Christianity, and we should be, right? Because what we celebrate at Easter is, is what we center our whole faith around. We're, we're saying Jesus wasn't just a good man. He wasn't just a wise teacher. We are saying he was the son of God. And we're saying that the son of God came to earth in a human body. He lived like us. Imagine the limitations. He lived with us. He lived with people. He lived with his disciples. And then he died for us so that forever we could be with him. So that's what we're celebrating. But we also have to acknowledge the reality of what, why did he have to do that? He had to do that so we could have this abundant eternal life that he promised us. He said, I came so that you might have life and have abundant eternal life. So what did he have to do to break the power of curse and sin and death? He, an innocent man, the son of God, had to die a criminal's death. And before that, being accused and mocked and physically beaten to a pulp. And then he dies. 
He dies for us. But that's kind of the whole thing we celebrate at Easter. He didn't stay dead, right? He rose from the dead. That's the exciting part. So we get to at Easter, go up to each other and, you know, in more traditional faith backgrounds, you say, he is risen. And what are you guys supposed to say? You guys got it. All right. That's, that's the crescendo moment. It's a crescendo moment. Jesus didn't stay dead. He came back from the dead. And, and you know, and then it's like, oh, he, he gave us the Holy Spirit. And we get really excited about these crescendo moments. But in a crescendo, if you don't know it, in music, it's like the, the highest point of, of loudness or intensity. Um, but how many of you know that in, in real life, we don't live in a constant state of crescendo moments. Those crescendo moments matter. And sometimes those crescendo moments will carry us to the next thing. But usually we live in these kind of post-crescendo moments of like mundane everyday moments or tense moments or awkward moments. And there's a lot more of those than there are crescendo moments in our lives. And uh, I think sometimes charismatic Christianity, we have a hard time with the mundane and the tense and the awkward. Um, we're not really good at embracing the foot washing like Holy Week, like Maundy Thursday. Um, you're supposed to, you know, wash each other's feet. Anybody love your feet to be washed? Nobody? Come on, guy. Okay, thank you. There's a lot of people that are just like, feet are gross. I don't care what Jesus did or that he told us to lower ourselves to that position. Feet are gross. Um, sometimes we're okay with the, the somberness, right, of Good Friday and remembering the gruesomeness of, of what Jesus went through. We're not real good at Silent Saturday, Holy Saturday. And that's typically when we do like our egg drops and like the Easter egg hunts and we do big outreaches and we're like, come to the church on Sunday. We're really good at the whole like, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. We love that. We like, like to get all excited Sunday. But the power of resurrection should be celebrated. And I love what we did last week, water baptisms. That is always so powerful and I get so choked up. It is a physical representation. It's symbolic, but it's saying, I am dying to myself. I'm dying to my old ways. I'm dying to my old ways of thinking and, and feeling and living. And as I come up out of the water, just like when we take the bread and or cracker and juice, we are saying, this is symbolic of something greater. I'm coming up out of the water, a new person. I am coming up resurrected and I'm coming up in the power that Christ had when he was resurrected. Those are the kind of crescendo moments that are worth celebrating and we get to cheer and just um, pray and rejoice along with all of heaven as someone goes under the water and comes back up a new life. I like those big crescendo moments, but after the, the resurrection, um, there's all these post-crescendo quieter moments. And in those moments, um, there's an invitation for all of us. Even though we live in the reality, like Patty said, we live in the reality, the veil is torn. We have access to God, close, intimate access to him. But I wanna explore some of the, the, 
post-crescendo moments when Jesus was still on the earth, he's risen, and he's visiting his disciples, and there's this pattern that shows up. And it's like Jesus will show up, sometimes literally up here, or, or you know, disappear after. He shows up to his disciples, and then it's kind of odd because they don't instantly recognize him. So whether that's because he had some kind of physical thing going on where he looks so different, whether that's he just didn't allow them to see him right away, but he shows up after their lives have been shattered because they heard, maybe a few of them heard a story of, oh, he, his body wasn't there, but they don't quite believe yet that he's risen. So he shows up to them, he reveals himself to them, so there's this aha moment where they realize it's him, and then he reassures them. And so I just want to go through a few of these stories. We're not going to turn there in scripture for all these stories, but their lives are shattered. They're trying to just process everything that's just happened. A lot is coming at them, and one of the stories that a lot of us know about is Mary Magdalene at the tomb. And she's gone to the tomb with some other women and they find that the stone over the tomb is rolled away and that the tomb is empty. And they're afraid that someone, some people have stolen the body of Jesus. And in the gospel account of John, Jesus appears to Mary and she's weeping. So she thinks his body has been stolen. And she, for some reason, thinks he's the gardener. He asks her why she's crying and she somehow thinks he's the gardener until he says her name. And I just think like how personal of Jesus. He didn't say, look up or look at me. He just said her name. Can you imagine Jesus just saying your name? And as soon as he says her name, Mary, she recognizes that it's him. And then he tells her, like, go, you can't stay with me. Quit, quit hanging on me and clinging, on, and clinging to me. Go, tell the other disciples that I'm alive and I'm going to meet them in Galilee. Or there's the account of the two disciples that are on their way to a village outside of Jerusalem, a village called Emmaus. And they're talking, and some versions actually say arguing about everything that had happened. Like, well, he said he was going to come back. Well, it's, it's already the third day and he's not back. Who knows what they were arguing about? And Jesus, the, some, some accounts say Jesus comes near and starts walking with them. He came close to them but they still don't recognize him. And he's asking why they're so discouraged and they're incredulous. They're like, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem that doesn't know what's gone down? Like, haven't you heard all the drama? Where have you been? And so they tell Jesus, they tell him, they tell him, Jesus was supposed to redeem Israel. He was supposed to rise again on the third day. And, but now he's dead, or but then he rose again, and like some of our friends told us that the tomb was empty and that there was angels there, but the body of Jesus isn't there. So Jesus just continues to walk with them. So it's probably about seven miles. He continues to walk with them, and he explains and breaks down all the scriptures, which are things that he had probably already shared with them at some point, but he re-explains them and says how everything points to the Messiah and how the Messiah had to die and the Messiah was going to rise again. They get to the town. They sit down to have a meal with Jesus. And it isn't until he breaks the bread that they recognize that it's him. And it says Jesus just disappears. He just disappears after that. And they say to each other, I love this, weren't our hearts 
burning inside of us? Weren't our hearts burning inside of us as he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? But even then, they still didn't recognize it was him until he allowed them to see him. There's the account of Jesus showing up on the Sea of Tiberias, um, where Peter and some of the other disciples had gone to go fishing. Now, at this point, he'd already, this is the third time he had revealed himself to his disciples. Um, So Peter, I love it, it's just like, he's like, I'm going fishing, let's go. And some of the other guys go with him. And they had fished all night, they had caught nothing. And if you know the scriptures in Luke 5, this is a familiar story because, or a familiar scenario, because in the very beginning when Jesus calls the disciples, they have also been fishing all night and they don't catch anything. And Jesus tells them to cast their nets in a certain spot. The nets are so full of fish after they do it, the nets begin to tear and break. They have to haul in, they get another boat to come and the boats are gonna sink because of all these fish. And that's when he called them to become his disciples. So he tells them where to fish, They do it, there's tons of fish, and it's at this moment that they realize that's not just a man on the shore telling us where to fish and giving us good fishing advice. He's not just a fellow fisherman, it's Jesus. And Peter jumps out of the boat and he's like, I'm going to him. And I I love this picture. Jesus is on the shore, He's got a little fire going. He's already got some fish going. He's like, bring some more fish that you just caught. And he's got some bread on the side of this crackling fire. And he invites them to come have breakfast with him. I just think it's beautiful. Now, this is where a lot of people will say this is where Peter was restored. And that's because Peter denied knowing Jesus three times on the night of Jesus's crucifixion. Um, over when he was captured. And he, Jesus told him, you're gonna deny me three times. And Peter's like, never, I would never do that. And then one right after the other, nope, nope, nope. I don't know this man, oh, not fourth. Um, I don't know this man. And so it's here that Jesus invites him to have a meal. And after the meal, he says, Peter, do you love me? And he asks him this three times. And each time Peter's, more and more devastated. Lord, you know I love you. And each time Jesus tells him something different, you know, feed my lambs, tend to my lambs, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep. If you love me, do these things. And then he tells Peter how he's going to die for him. But in each of these instances, Jesus took the time to be with his disciples after his resurrection. He showed up, he revealed himself, he reassured them, he explained things to them. So let's go in our Bibles to John 20. We're gonna read about an account that actually happened right before the, the fishing scenario with Peter. We're going to read about um, Jesus revealing himself to the disciples in a room. So John 20, verse 19 to 29. So it says, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. 
After he had said this, he showed them his hands where the nails were. He showed them his side where the spear had pierced his side as he was hung on the cross. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. This was their crescendo moment right here. They get to actually see him. And so then again, Jesus tells them, peace be with you. And as the father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. That's a whole other message we could unpack, just those words right there. But here's the thing. Now, Thomas, also known as the twin, he was one of the 12, and he was not with the disciples when Jesus came that first time. So the other disciples tell, told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and this time Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked again, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. He worshiped him in that moment. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, typically, we call the disciple in this account, what? What do we call him? Doubting Thomas. And you know, isn't that just like all of us that we can be so quick to label a person at their lowest moment, whatever their weaknesses or failures are, and we attach an identity to them at their lowest moment and say that's who they are forever. And apparently Bible editors are not above that either. Um, I really liked that my, my Bible said this passage was called Thomas Sees and Believes. Thomas Sees and Believes. And I just think, you know, Jesus did not have to reveal himself to Thomas separately. He didn't. I mean, I know that the disciples are supposed to go out. They're going to become the church apostles, the church fathers. Um, but he could have just been like, well, Thomas, I don't know where you were or why you were moping and you weren't with the other disciples and why you felt like you needed time alone and you're such an introvert. And, you know, you didn't want to be with all of the other ones. They're all loud and they're probably all arguing and you just needed a, a, a night at home. And um, why couldn't you have been with them? Or why, you know, it's not good enough to just know that I'm alive. Your friends told you. They all said they'd seen me. What is this that you have to like touch my hands, put your hand in my side? He could have said, you don't have enough faith to be my disciple. You're not going to get to be one of the church fathers. But Jesus makes this whole separate appearance just so Thomas can get what he asked for. Now, and I do think there, there is a stubbornness or maybe an entitlement, I don't know, that Thomas would say, I'll never believe. 
I'll never believe unless this thing happens. This thing that I'm asking Jesus to do for me, I wouldn't, I'm not going to believe. And I just think, man, the stubbornness, the audacity. But have you ever been a never believer? You know, if you, if you let my loved one die, I'll never believe that you're good. If you don't save me, rescue me from this, this pain of betrayal in my marriage, I'll never believe that you are who you say you are. If you don't show up for me at my school, if you don't show up for me in my workplace, you don't show up for me in my parenting or in my finances, I'll never believe. If you don't take away this pain, this excruciating pain that I live with every day, if you don't take it away, I'll never believe. If you won't take away the memories that haunt me or the anxiety that haunts me or the depression that haunts me, um, I'll never believe. How can I believe you're good? And maybe you're in a never-believer moment right now. As I was praying into this message, I actually heard this, this phrase just kind of floating around, and it's not like I was reading, listening to all these Easter podcasts or anything, but I, I assumed it was because Easter was coming. But I just kind of kept hearing this phrase, death doesn't have the final word. Death doesn't have the final word. And in my head, I was thinking, well, Easter's coming. Of course, death doesn't have the final word. Jesus is risen. Woo! That's what we get to celebrate. Um, but I, I really felt today that this message was for anyone in a place of discouragement. That their healing hasn't come yet. Um, sorry, I'm feeling it. For anyone disillusioned with their faith, their faith in God, um, for anyone doubting that God is powerful enough to rescue or to heal. And maybe you're just a skeptical person. You know, you're, you're skeptical like of anything that seems too good to be true. Anyway, that's just who you are. Um, maybe you consider yourself a critical thinker and you're like, well, I just, I need to see things. I, I just need proof. I do think some of us, we've actually become guarded. We've become skeptical. We've become shut down because we actually used to be overeager. We actually used to be really zealous for God and, and that he can do miracles. But now we know the sting of death. Or we know the devastation of disappointment when the thing that you're praying for doesn't, thank you, Aaron, doesn't happen. And so you could be thinking, that's a, sounds like a great statement. Death doesn't have the final word, but death has sure wreaked havoc on my beliefs about God being good, sure wreaked havoc on my belief that the Bible is a trustworthy source to be um, followed, listened to. And it is kind of funny. I mean, we're the crazy ones. If you don't know it, in society, there's a lot of crazy people out there, but we are the crazy ones that actually believe Jesus is real. We believe that he is who he says he was, that he died and that he rose again. And we say that, and that's crazy. I mean, maybe some of you know someone who has died and risen again. They probably weren't the son of God, even if they did. But we have this thing where this is what we center our whole faith around. And yet we will still live our lives as if death has the final word. And that could be uh, like literal death. We've all lost loved ones or we will 
lose loved ones. And that a death of a loved one is like this earthquake and it shakes the foundations of everything that we have built our belief system on. It will rock our entire world and death, especially of a loved one, but um, it always changes us for better or for worse. It could also be a figurative death. Maybe it's like the death of hope when you're suffering from chronic pain. It could be the death of dreams when you've experienced betrayal and a friendship. It could be just the death of how you thought things would be. You know, being hurt by the, the choices that your adult kid is making and wondering where you went wrong and you had a different, you know, view of like what their life was gonna look like and how things would be. And I think we get things backwards as disciples of Jesus. We're always needing to be reminded of who Jesus is, who he says we are, what he did for us, but it's easy to get things backwards. And what I mean by that is we'll come to Jesus and we know our need for him and we're just happy. When we come to him and we say, we want, I want you to be the Lord of my life, that's a crescendo moment. I want you to be the Lord of my life. I can't do things on my own. I'm struggling, I'm stuck. And so we're like, oh, I get new life. I get to be a new person following Jesus. And for some reason, we start to expect that we are gonna be able to live life free of pain and suffering and death. Like, isn't that the trade-off? We give God our whole lives and then he does all the things for us that we want him to do. And isn't that supposed to be like the punishment of people that don't follow God? They're, they're not supposed to have all, you know, they get all that stuff and we get the life, we get the freedom, we get the money, we get the healthy bodies. We get all the things. But Jesus told his disciples, he told us, in this world, you will have trouble. In this world, there will be darkness. In this world, there will be evil. There will be pain. There will be suffering. There will be death. He told us that. But so we'll get angry or confused when the reality of living in a fallen world touches our lives and we experience the trouble that he promised us would come. So we'll think, you know, we should not be experiencing these things and then they happen and it's like an earthquake and it shakes the foundations of our faith and we're like, who is God? Now, this is not to condemn if you are in a moment of something is shaking your world, it's shaking your foundations. I actually like that. I think of it like I, where I grew up, there were a lot of orchards and you know they would have the tree, uh, there's trees with fruit on them and there's the machine that goes up and shakes the tree and all the fruit comes down. And I do believe that we were, when we're in moments of shaking, the fruit that has been produced in our lives, the seeds from a long time ago that we've allowed God to produce in our lives will fall to the ground and we get to eat of it in our darkest moments. But we should live expecting pain, suffering, and death to come. But because we follow Jesus, we get to anticipate and hope for something that people that don't know him can't hope or anticipate for. We get to look for and with great expectation go, here's this awful thing. How am I gonna see God show up? How is he gonna redeem this? I'm gonna wait expectantly and say, Lord, where is the beauty? Where's the beauty in this? We're promised that beauty from ashes, joy from places of mourning, a garment of praise that he, he, we put on where there's been heaviness. 
So God, give us eyes to see. Give us eyes to see how and where you're making things new in our lives. They're not, we see darkness, but show us where the light is. Show us where you're already at. Show us where there's fruit from things you've done in our lives a long time ago so that we can be grateful for the moment that we're in right now that there's fruit that you've produced in our life that is dropping to the ground that can sustain us in our moment of shaking. There's this uh, pastor and author, Justin Holcomb, Holcomb, I think, and um, there's this quote, he, he said, faith and doubt are not polar extremes. Doubt is actually really close to faith. Doubt can be a sign of a lively faith because it pushes against the way things actually are and says it shouldn't be this way. Doubt has high expectations. I love that. I don't know you know, Pete said it last week when he was talking about, I don't know why God heals some things, but not other things, right? Um, I, I don't know why God allows some of the things in our lives. Um, but if you're in the middle of a moment where you're, you're like, God, I don't know why you're allowing this, and you have a higher expectation, I expect for you to show up. I would say, look, look for where he is showing up. And I'm gonna use present tense. You can look back in your past, do that. Look back where he has shown up for you. Remember that, be grateful for that, but look where he's already showing up right now in the middle of your mess. Where is he showing up in your disillusionment? Where is he showing up in your grief and your suffering? Then look for where is he revealing himself because sometimes he shows up and we don't know he's there. So where is he revealing himself? And he's there before we recognize him. He's there before, he's always with us and we know that, but he's there already working on our behalf, interceding on our behalf, praying us through our trials and temptations. He's the great intercessor. And so we can have moments where, where we look back and we can say, oh, now I see God was there all along, but we have the hardest time doing it when we're in the middle of something. Look, look for where he's revealing himself. And then look for where Jesus is reassuring you. If you have a voice that's just like, oh, why, why can't you get it together? You're still crying about losing that loved one. You still, you still have depression over that. You're still, you're still in, a, in a really bad place. Any voice that's coming at that like you is not the voice of God. It's the voice of the accuser. He loves to kick us when we're down. He loves to accuse us. He loves to get us to partner with lies over our life. Jesus is reassuring you in your doubts, in your fear, in your sadness. Sorry, I'm just feeling all the things. Jesus did tell his disciples, in this world you will have trouble. But there's a second part to the verses, and I always hate it when, you know, it, we, we, we take one part of a sentence and we use that, like, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and we stop there. It's like, read the rest of the verse. Keep going. He said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. Ah, let your heart have courage. Let your heart have faith, because I have already overcome the world. 
In this world, you're going to have darkness. There will be dark times. Evil is going to touch your life. Death is going to touch your life. But I'm the light. I'm the light. I'm the truth. I'm the way. I'm the light that overcomes the darkness. We should expect Jesus to prove himself more powerful than darkness. That is a good expectation to have. So death can happen, but death doesn't get the final word. Jesus can take any moment that the enemy meant for your harm, your destruction to wipe you out, and he can redeem it. He can take anything and make something beautiful out of it. So will you let Jesus have your trouble today? And I do want to say one last thing. Sometimes Jesus will show up and he will. He will minister to you. He will show up. You're driving in your car, listening to some random podcast, or you're at home scrubbing your floors or washing your dishes, or you're putting your kid to bed, or you're grading papers, or whatever the, the, just the thing is that you're doing. And sometimes God will show up and he'll minister to you personally through the Holy Spirit. Or maybe you're reading your Bible and the words are just ministering to you. They're food for your soul. But oftentimes, God chooses to work through the people around us. The people he's placed in our lives to convey his heart for us. To convey words of truth and encouragement to us. He will use people to come around us and love us when we are in our most disillusioned, discouraged, devastated, post-crescendo moments. I think that, you know, when Jesus showed up for Thomas, it wasn't just Thomas in that room. So all the other disciples were there and they'd already seen Jesus. But Thomas had obviously been there and he had missed out. And I believe God could have come to Thomas on his own. He could have come to him and been like, well, I already went to all the other disciples, but I think there was something in the fact that Thomas was like, I'm going to stay with you guys. Jesus has already shown up to you once. Maybe he'll do it again. And yeah, I've got these high standards, but I'm going to be there when it happens. If you're discouraged or disappointed or disillusioned, don't isolate don't pull away from the family of God. There is healing for you in the family of God. No one has to suffer alone in the family of God. And we will, we'll expect people to come to us and to know exactly what's going on with us, but go, go where God's already moving. Go with the people of God who already, your friends who have a little bit more faith than you do and hang out with them and be with them. So where do you go? Where do you go and what do you do in your post-crescendo moments? Mary Magdalene, you know, she went with other women to the last place that she knew Jesus was. Where was the last place? It was the tomb. She went there and he shows up to her as she's crying. The disciples on the road to Emmaus were just walking together and just in a very real way processing and arguing about everything they just experienced. And Jesus just shows up on their walk, starts walking with them. Peter and the other disciples, they go back to work. Well, got to make some money now. Jesus is gone. We're not going to be following him around the earth anymore. So um, he's going back to heaven. Go back to work. And Jesus just shows up the next morning with a meal. 
and some words for Peter to restore him. (laughs) You know, Thomas is with the other disciples in a house and Jesus shows up to prove that he's alive just to Thomas. Jesus will meet you in your disappointment in the way things are and the way things have turned out. Jesus is going to find you in your physical pain. Jesus is going to reveal himself to you in your relational suffering, relationships that you're in that don't seem to be working out. And Jesus will come to comfort you after the death of a dream or the death of a loved one. During one of of Jesus' most famous teachings, the, the Sermon on the Mount, he said, God blesses those who are poor in spirit and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice. People who have high expectations, they push back against the way things are and say it should be different, it should be better, for they will be satisfied. So today, if you find yourself aware of your need for Jesus, if you're grieving a loss, if there's something in your life that you know you can't fix on your own, or if you're crying out to God, like, I need you to move in this situation. Something is wrong and I need you to make it right. Then you are blessed by God today.